the world is ugly. That's how I began this sermon series last week. And uh, you know it from like wars and shootings and things like that. But all you have to do is have a baby for the ugliness of the world to stand out. Our baby just turned eight months. And in the last eight months, I've noticed things that I've never noticed before because because you think about how you have brought this this child into the world and now you have to raise them and all of a sudden all of the ugliness of the world starts to stand out because you're you're trying to protect your child from all of that ugliness and uh, you hear stories of, of people being assaulted and abused and hurt, and, and you think, I don't want that to happen to my daughter. And uh, you think about how the world is, is just an ever-changing place, and our country seems to be ever-changing towards a morality that I don't subscribe to. And, and you think about having conversations with your daughter, you know, when she turns 13, and those conversations will be vastly different and perhaps more difficult than they were, you know, when I was 13, somebody had to have conversations about morality with me and it's scary. And, and you think about like, I'm going to send her to school someday and she's going to go to school and just here in our own city of Wilsonville, and I haven't heard the follow-up to this story, uh, but there was a non-used uh, bullet found at one of the elementary schools this past week. And, and whether, you know, however it got there, it reminds you of all the bad things that can happen when a kid goes to school. And, and so having a baby has been this reminder like the world is, is pretty bad. And I can tell you this, one of the things I could do with my time is, is spend all of it complaining. And it seems that a lot of people have subscribed to this response to how bad our, our world and our country has become, how, how ugly it is. It seems that some people's solution to the ugliness of our world is simply to talk about how ugly the world is all the time, right? And, and whether that's you and, and you're like the, the complainer that, that nobody wants to hang out with, you probably don't know that if that's you. But, um, but if that's you, you know, nobody wants to be around you because you show up and all of a sudden it's, you know, how bad uh, everything is and how bad your life is and how unlucky you are. Or, or this is probably more true for, for most of you, you just kind of have those moments where you're like that, and, and you're just a little bit like that, you know? You, you find that the further morality leaves your morality in our country or whatever, the more you just want to talk badly about our country or a politician or whatever, and you find that, uh, that in your average conversations, it's not about how good God is or anything like that. It's more about how uh, the things that you don't like and the things that you're dealing with and the things that you struggle with. And, and I know that we all have this tendency to just be complainers. Um, uh, and and this, is, this is not a put down. I don't mean this anyway. I'm just saying it's a tendency. Because if you look at our prayer request sheet, which is about a mile long, uh, mostly it's bad, right? And, and I get that you want prayer for those things, but it's almost hard to talk people into saying, hey, tell us when things have gone well in your life. And, and we've noticed this trend like we do rock, paper, scissors, hang loose prayer, and, and we get a lot of hang looses and people kind of like to generally say, yeah, God did something good. But to like get a specific, you don't often hear things like that. You don't hear about the good things going on in people's lives because people have a tendency to focus more on the negative things that are happening than on the positive things. 
I saw something pop up on Facebook the other day that said, no, you didn't have a bad day. You had a bad minute and you wrecked the rest of the day because of that bad minute, something to that effect. And that's kind of us, right? We look around, the world is ugly, and then we spend all of our time focusing on that ugliness, talking about that ugliness, complaining to other people about that ugliness, and, and it doesn't do any good. It only, if anything, makes us uglier. We're talking about in this series living a beautiful life, and I can tell you that, that one of the ways that's, one of the things that's never going to make you more beautiful is just recognizing that the world is ugly and then talking about it all the time. Because a Debbie Downer, I found these different terms, or a negative Nancy, or did you know this was one? A pessimist, pessimistic Patty, who knew that that was a, a label for somebody? Uh, I know it's sexist that they're all women's names, but I didn't have time to come up with men's names. It's not my fault, it's just how it happened. Uh, but, but like we don't want to be those things, and we know, we know without a doubt that, that pointing out the flaws and the failures and the hurts and the pains of this world will never make a person more beautiful. It will just make them uglier. And so what is the response? I mean, when we're looking at the world, what should be our response to the ugliness? How ought we to live if we are going to stand out from the ugliness. Because we think, and, and Christians are perhaps the worst, we think that the best way to stand out from the ugly world is to identify the ugly world as ugly. And so we complain, and we may complain more than the average person about all that's happening and all that's gone wrong and how it's not the way that it used to be and how it's not the way that God wants it. And, and I, just, I just know from personal experience that this, this does not make you more beautiful and it doesn't make our world any prettier. That's for darn sure. And so the question becomes, what is the proper response? And I want to remind you again, we're studying this book called First Peter. It's in the Bible, written by a guy named Peter. You could have guessed that. And Peter is writing to uh, a group of people scattered through Asia Minor, a, a region of the world. And he's writing to these people in these churches. And, and he knows that the world is an ugly place because he's facing some of the persecution uh, against Christians and things like that. And, and God knows, as he inspires Peter to write this book, that the world is, is going to get even uglier. Uh, it's going to be more difficult for Christians. These people that he's writing to are facing a little bit of persecution, but they're going to face a lot of persecution. And some of them uh, may die uh, for being Christians. And so the world, their world, is going to get uglier. And so Peter writes this book in large part as a response to the ugliness that is taking place around him and around those that he loves and he cares about. And he gives us in, in the verses we're going to look at today, I think the proper response to stand out from the ugliness. The whole book is about how we ought to live, but, but here we see the attitude, I think, the attitude that we can have that will make us stand out in an ugly world, that will make us beautiful in the midst of an ugly world, despite uh, all the darkness that we see. And it's so much better. I promise you, your neighbors will like you more, your coworkers will like you more. Everybody will go, wow, they're different and better. If you'll follow suit with what Peter says, here instead of just saying, I'll identify everything that's wrong and tell everybody about it all the time. 
And here's how Peter begins in verse three. Remember, he's, he's, you go, well, it's easy, it's in the Bible, but he is writing to people who may in fact give their very lives in gruesome, horrible ways. Peter, uh, history tells us, died in a horrible way because of his faith. And so this is, this is a guy writing in a culture that is ugly. And here's how he begins in, in verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I just want to, this is almost a side note, uh, but he begins with this idea of praising God. And, and just in my own reading, I'm doing something different this year as I read through the Bible and uh, longer than a year now. But uh, usually I just read and I, I like to just read and try to digest in my mind and my heart and my soul. But I'm, I'm just taking little notes on my iPad this year, four or five per chapter, like this stood out or do this different or God, please help me with this. So like a prayer or something or, or something I need to change in my own personal life. And one of the things that I've been amazed at is I'm just kind of going through, not thinking about sermons, just trying to say, what does this mean to me? Just brief, no study or anything, it is how often the Bible talks just simply about praising God or saying good things about God. Just saying good things, very simple thing to do. But what I've noticed, and the reason it stood out so much as I've gone through the Bible and made these notes, is that in Christian circles today, we don't have that very much anymore. We don't often just say good things about God. People ask us how we're doing. We don't often say like, God has done this great thing in my life. That's foreign language to us. But the Bible seems to almost take for granted that one of the things that God-loving, God-fearing, God-serving people will do is they'll just say nice things about God. And one author, as I was looking at, at uh, a commentary on this verse, said that, uh, that praising God is a helpful antidote to Kind of the darkness. He didn't say the darkness, but the darkness and the ugliness of the world. And I just thought, like, almost as a side note to where I want to really focus in this passage, but, but what, if, what if we just, in the midst of all the ugliness, instead of, instead of identifying everything that was bad and wrong and how we don't like those groups of people and this group of people and that group of people and they're messing it up and all that, what if we just said nice things about God? I mean, wouldn't we already just feel better? And I think that we would begin to look more beautiful. If instead of complaining all the time, we just said nice things about God, I don't think that the people that we think would get all mad at us because we were talking about God or whatever would be upset. They'd probably like us more than their average friend that is complaining about everything all the time, work, politics, all of that. And so just a, just a first thought, like notice, I mean, don't just skip over, even though this is just kind of a greeting for Peter, but, but think about what he's saying in the greeting. Praise be to God the Father. Say nice things about God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should be in your everyday language to talk about the good things that God has done, is doing, and will do in your life. And then he says this other thing that has just huge profound theological significance. He says uh, that in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And when you read this, this new birth idea, you can't help but think about uh, 
this concept that we see pretty clearly in Scripture, and that is that when we become Christians, we are born again. We become a new creation in Christ. And uh, this begins, and it, maybe you've heard this term, and, and I had uh, Mormon friends uh, that, that pointed out that not everybody talks like this to me, but in evangelical non-Mormon circles, we talk about being born again a lot. That's a, that's a pretty common phrase. It used to be a more common phrase, and Mormons don't use that language. So I remember my buddy Logan would say, like, what, what is this term, even though it's scriptural? And, and the reason we talk about becoming a Christian in terms of being born again is because of this, this kind of interesting, weird conversation that Jesus had in John 3, uh, 1 through 8. Jesus replied, talking to a guy named Nicodemus. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, skipping down. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so here's this weird conversation. You gotta be born again. And then Jesus, uh, John, uh, it depends on the scholar you talk to in verse 16, says, here's how you get born again. You believe in Jesus. Uh, You believe that Jesus died for your sins, that God sent his son to die for your sins. And the concept here is that when we become a Christian, there is this spiritual birth that we undergo. And, And in some ways, we become a brand new creature, not our physical bodies. We're not put back into the womb. It's weird that Nicodemus even would have thought that. But I guess if it was a new, a new phrase, born again, you'd be like, what? And Jesus said a lot of stuff that people didn't understand. So maybe it would be like, Wow, this is getting crazy, you know? Uh, but, but it's a spiritual birth that we undergo. And, and Paul talks about this, and he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And Paul talks about it in terms of, of how our morals shift, and we become different in the way that we act and the way that we live. We put off an old self, and we take on our new selves uh, that has been redeemed in Christ. And so the concept is that when we become Christians, something in our very souls has a rebirth, has a, a, a resurrection of sorts. It becomes something new. And here in Peter, there's a ton that you could talk about with that, that whole uh, idea. But in Peter, he wants us to focus on one thing, and that's this. I don't want you to pay very close, close attention to it. He says, we have been born again into, into a living hope. And I think this is so fascinating when we talk about how ugly the world is because the truth is, the reality is, we all know this. We are all born, we are all born into an ugly, dark, sinful, disgusting world when we come out of the womb. But what Peter wants us to know is that when we are born again, we are born into a new reality of sorts, a reality that, that is described as a living hope. And so for you who are Christians, just pay attention to this. You live in this ugly world. You were born into this ugly world. You can see the ugliness of this world. You have to stay here until you die or Jesus comes back. You understand that. But what we often forget is that we also have been born again. And we've been born again, not into a dying, ugly world, but but into a living hope in our souls. And so we exist really in two planes. We exist in the world and, as Paul describes it, we exist 
in Christ. John MacArthur said this, the unbelieving world only knows dying hopes. The unbelieving world only knows dying hopes. But when we are born again, we know a living hope, a hope that will not die. And Peter reminds us that we have this hope because because our foundation, the foundation of our faith is in fact a resurrected savior. All of our hope is represented, is begun in the fact that Jesus died for our sins and then he came out of the grave and rose again, conquering sin and conquering death for us. And so we no longer live under just a reality where everything is constantly getting worse and worse and worse and worse and getting uglier and uglier and uglier and uglier and progressing towards death further and further every day. But now when we become Christians, we're born again and we're born again into the resurrection of Jesus and therefore into a hope that won't die ever, that will never turn ugly as we'll see in a second. And I think just quickly, easily, it's, it's important that in this ugly world, if we want to stand out and be more beautiful, then the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to understand, recognize, and remember that we have been born again, not into another ugly world, not into darkness, but we have been born again into living hope. And we should be eternally, eternally hopeful. When the Bible uses the word hope, every place that I've ever seen it uses the term hope as more like confident expectancy, not as in wishful thinking. Like if I had a basketball right now, I could shoot it at the hoop on the other side right now, and I would hope that it would go in. I would. Uh, but I wouldn't have any expectancy that it would go in. I wouldn't bet my life on it. I wouldn't bet a penny on it because I probably wouldn't make this shot right now. But when the Bible says hope, it doesn't mean hope like that, like everybody kind of has hope, right? Like I hope in things. But it means that we confidently expect the work that God will do in our lives. The work that God has done, we remember, and the work that God will do and is doing, we, we just expect great things. Now think with me for a second about the very thing that makes people stand out in the world in which we live already. You just know this already. It's just ingrained in us. It's hope. When you meet somebody who is eternally hopeful, you, you know that their life is in some ways more beautiful than the person that complains all the time. And as Christians, we have been born again into a confident expectancy that is alive and active that won't ever go away, as Peter will tell us in just a second. And so we, we should be the most hopeful people on earth. And in fact, I'll just say this. I know a lot of Christians that are not hopeful at all. They seem, in fact, utterly hopeless. And it's just wrong. It's wrong. Because we have been born again into a living hope. And listen, to what, listen about this living hope because it, it matters so greatly. First Peter 1, 4, and 5. And into an inheritance, he continues, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The reason for the hope, the reason that our hope is alive is that for Christians, it goes beyond wishful thinking because we already have obtained an inheritance that waits for us in heaven. The world is ugly. Notice this. I want you to pay attention to this. The reason that we recognize the ugliness of the world so strongly 
is because usually the things that we hope in eventually become rotted and corrupted and gross. Don't you know that? I mean, think about it. You hope in like a political leader, but eventually that political leader will in some ways prove to be corrupt. It's just uh, the nature of life. You hope in things like education, but you know that the education system is not perfect and will ultimately fail. Even if a person gets a degree and another degree and another degree, then their lives could be unsuccessful in worldly terms. You hope in your friends, but you know this. You know this. Your friends will fail you. And when they do, you know why you get so mad? Because your hope was in them and they've proved to be, don't tell them I said this, ugly in some way. You know, they've proved to be ugly when they turn their backs on you or where they're not there for you, when they hurt you. And your hopes are dashed. People put their hopes in money all the time and it always fails them. It fails them for two reasons. One, it goes away and then they go, oh, well, accident, you know, I lost my money. Or two, because they don't find the happiness and the joy that they long for even when they have an unlimited amount of money. They always, always, always want more money. But for Christians, our hope is eternal Because God's power is protecting it for us, it will never perish, spoil, or fade away. And I just want to ask this question when you think about the things that you hope in. Is what, if what you hope in proves true, how long will the satisfaction or the joy or whatever you gain from that hope last? I mean, let's say you've placed your hope in a political leader because we're in an election year and that political leader gets elected. You got eight years, you know, if it's the president. You got eight years. That's, that's as long as your hope will last, even if that guy uh, or, or woman turns out to be everything that you thought they were going to be. Even if they are perfect, you have eight years with them. If you put your hope in your health, I guarantee this, you have about 60 years. You know, I mean, some of you are older, so you have less. Um, but, but, you know, if you're, if you're young, then you have 60 years of really solid health or so left and then that hope will go away. I mean, if, if what you hope in proves true, how long will the hope actually last? Because I only know of one thing that, that we can place our hope in that will last forever, and that is the hope that Jesus offers us through his resurrection. And the hope that comes as we place our faith in him as Lord and Savior, and we are born into uh, a living hope, we become a new creation. Now think about this. Just think about hope and and how it changes you. Uh, We have this inheritance. It's in heaven. It will never go away. And I think it's like this. And I had a crown and I left it in my car and I just realized about 30 seconds ago. Uh, But I wanted to put on a crown for you to illustrate this. So pretend I have a golden crown on uh, from some birthday party we were at. Uh, But if you, let's just say this, let's just say, if you were rich in another country and you were here right now, you were rich, you were powerful, you were popular, you were cool, everybody liked you, everything was good, everything was perfect for you in another country, wouldn't it change your day-to-day here? I mean, wouldn't the way you think about life and the way you go about your business and the way that uh, you respond to adversity or respond to the ugliness of the world, wouldn't it be completely and utterly different if you knew that you were looking forward to your return home 
where you had everything that you ever longed for? I mean, somebody makes fun of you. Somebody comes up to you and you're an idiot, you're not smart, you're not good looking, you're not as cool as me, you're not successful, whatever. You'd be like, mm, it's going to work out in the end, man. I'm going home someday. I mean, you, you looked around and, and you financially, you're struggling, right? And, and you, you just don't have the money that you need. You'd go, well, it's okay because, because someday the bills will be paid off when I get back to my home. I mean, when you look at all the bad stuff that goes on around you and, and, and you just go, well, someday I'm going to be in a place that's really perfect for me. I mean, when you think about the shifting moral culture that, that we have and, and you go, I don't like it and it doesn't fit me anymore and, and I'm struggling with this thing or that thing, uh, you're going to go back and you're going to be in a place where the morals are exactly in line with what you uh, desire what your hope is in wouldn't it just make everything different it would totally change your perspective and Peter in our first two verses reminded us that our citizenship is not here on earth but our citizenship is in heaven in another place and now here in our, our our verses for today he says that in the place where we will go someday things are perfect for us and not only are they perfect for us but we have an inheritance to look forward to we are rich and it has to change the way that we respond to the ugly world because not because we shouldn't respond by pointing out all the negatives we should respond by remembering the hope that we have the inheritance that we look forward to that should be a Christian's response to the ugliness that we face. And then he, then he, just, then he gets right down to it. And he says, this, this is what it should look like. This is what it should be like. Because you have that hope, let me tell you what ought to happen in your day-to-day -day life. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls. The this at the very beginning, the this is that we have hope that will never go away. We have hope in our inheritance that will never fade, never perish, never be defiled. And so he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. The term is something to the effect of rejoice in joy. That's a cool phrase, right? Like you rejoice in joy, abundantly joyful. The idea has its origins in the definition that is this, to leap or dance much, to rejoice with song and dance, hence to exult, leap for joy. How many Christians do you know like that? I mean, what are we known for? We're known for complaining about politics and moral stances that we don't like. And Peter says, hey, I know your world is ugly, and right here, uh, you're facing trials of every kind. But let me tell you how it should be. You have this hope, and this hope cannot be taken from you. And so no matter what, you should be dancing with joy. Now you say, it's weird that Peter would say, 
have joy even though trials come because when trials come, that's, that's what makes life ugly, right? I mean, if there were no trials, life would be beautiful and my life would be more beautiful. But he says, in trials, and then he says these things about trials that are so important and they're true just if you're a Christian. He says that these trials will only last a little while. That's a big deal when we face difficult things, right? Because we always feel like they're going to last forever. I heard this in a sermon once, but it, it has been so true in my life. They, they compared the world in which we live to being sick. And when you're sick, don't you feel like you'll never be well again? And it's really difficult if you're like me who doesn't handle sickness very well. I feel like I've never been well before. You know what I mean? You know this. I think especially if you're a man, you know this feeling. Like, I am dead and I will die in this state. This throat will never feel better. My chills will never go away. It's, it, it's the end. And I talk like that too. Bren, I need chicken soup because I am dead. You know, like life is ended. And, and, and that's what Peter says about our trials. These trials last for a little while. Then, and I love this. He says that these trials are necessary. Now look, I can't tell you why your trials are necessary. But I can tell you that if you have been born into a living hope, if you're a Christian, if you've made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, then God is not letting you go through any trials that doesn't have some type of value in your life. The trials are called necessary, and we must trust that God is the one who knows that they're necessary, even though we may not have a clue why or how they could possibly result in our good. Now, some people will tell you, hey, when you get to the other side of this, you, you're going to realize, you know, that you're stronger, you're better, things like that. I've been through trials that made me no better at all in any way that I can possibly see. Just came out of them. They, they were terrible. Wish they wouldn't have happened. Wish that I could have avoided them. They were terrible. But here's what I trust. Because of what Peter says, because of what the Bible makes clear to me, even though I can't see the results of those trials, I trust that they were necessary in the mind of God and God has a much, this is understatement of the year, a much bigger mind than me. He says that they can be proof of your future inheritance. Man, I'll tell you this, if you wanna, and this question comes up, how do I know I'm gonna go to heaven? How do I know that I'm really a Christian? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever been asked that maybe? Has anybody said, how can I know? And, and we say, well, you believe that Jesus is your savior and Lord and, and those things, and, and that's true. But, but, but like, how can I really know that I do believe Jesus is my savior and Lord? How can I really know that I've placed my faith in him? How can I really know? And what the Bible seems to make clear is, is the way you can really know when life is terrible and ugly, if you continue to strive to live for Jesus despite it, that's the best proof you can have for the fact that you believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world and you are, uh, have given your life to him. And so when you go through the bad things of life and you're like, this is ugly, and you continue to strive to live for Jesus, the good news that Peter gives us, although it's not great news, it's good news, is that it can be proof of your faith. And proof, he says, is, is more, of more worth than gold. Knowing, knowing that you have an inheritance to look forward to is more valuable than gold because even gold will be taken from us eventually. And then, and then he says that they result in praise, honor, and glory for Jesus. And when I first read it, I just automatically assumed uh, that, that that was for Jesus, that, that that praise and that glory and that honor went to Jesus. But some commentators actually believe that that praise and that honor and that glory, and this just blows my mind, uh, is for us when we get to heaven someday. Now, 
I don't know the answer which side of that coin I should come out on, but just, just consider if that's true. Like Jesus dies for us. He deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and everything good that we possibly have in our lives. But yet if we'll just get through these trials that life throws at us and we'll continue to live for him, then when we get to heaven, he's gonna celebrate that with us. He's gonna say, good job. I can tell you this. And I don't mean this just like, because I wanna sound spiritual. There is no way that Jesus should ever say good job to me. I should only say good job to him. But if this passage is saying that we get praise and honor and glory someday, it's like, hey, Chad, I died for you. I rose again. I gave you the ability to face these trials, but I'm so gracious and so wonderful and so good that, hey, good job getting through them. That's powerful to me. And the only chance we have of that is to go through these trials and to continue to live for Jesus. Man. Now I want to point this out. He says that we can do get through these trials and continue to be joyful because we believe and love Jesus despite not having seen him. And I want to say that faith is required to become a Christian and faith is required to have the joy that the Bible describes, a joy that goes beyond the ugliness of the world. And uh, there are great proofs for Jesus uh, being God and Savior. There are great proofs for the Bible to be a reliable, important, spiritual document. But at some point, you just have to say, man, there's doubts. There's things I don't understand, but I will place my faith in him. And, 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 and I think I can say this without, without a doubt, that you will find a joy that you have never experienced before if you choose to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and choose to love him. I think every Christian that, that you know, if, if you haven't done that yet, would tell you that, that while their life has not become perfect, while they're not always happy and excited about everything, they always have a different level of joy. I can see this in my own life. I have faced a lot of bad things. And while I've been sad, you know, just as sad as you, Despite sadness, I still have joy all the time. I can tell you that no matter what I go through, I have joy. In the midst of my, my greatest tears, I still have joy. And the Christians that I'm around do too. And then Peter describes this joy that Christians should have in this, these other ways. He says that they're inexpressible or that is higher than speech. Like so happy you squeal, you know. I mean, if you and we're gonna show a video in a second that I think will will, will kind of hopefully illustrate this. Uh, and then he says that this joy uh, is glorious. It is to be rendered the highest praise. Isn't that a weird kind of oxymoron that he uses that I, I really like? It's higher than praise, but it deserves the highest praise. Makes me understand it. And this is the type of joy that Christians should have despite circumstances because of the hope that they have. I think it's like this video. We're going to pull up and... What did she say? Grab something for me. That's what that lady said? What do you mean? What is it going to be? Faithlin. Faithlin, I don't... There's no way. Why would they have something for you here? No, I don't think so. I don't know 
what it's going to be. Faithland, those are so expensive. I don't think that's what it is. I don't know. Are you excited? I don't know. <gasps> Look at her go. Oh what? <laughs> Faithland? What is that? <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> Tell her, Daddy. Faithland, it's it's yours. It's yours. Happy birthday. <laughs> Faithlin! Happy birthday! This is from a real one from all your family, Faithlin. They wanted to give you this. Look at how pretty she She looks like you, Faithlin! Wow. The, the squeals, the giggles, I think they represent what should be deep in our souls when we recognize the hope that we have. And Peter says this really cool thing. And I, I think it's something that we often forget. He says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The idea is not that we just have an inheritance somewhere out there. It's not the idea that we will get something someday. It's that we have been given something already, the salvation of our souls. It's like this. It's like if I handed you keys to a brand new car, pick your favorite kind of car, you can fill in the blank, you'd be pumped, even if you hadn't driven it yet. You know, even if you hadn't driven it, you just owned it, you would be excited. You might giggle and squeal like that little girl in that, in that video right there because you would know that you possess something so awesome, something you've wanted, something you've looked forward to or dreamed of, I should say. And what Peter says is that when we are born into the living hope, while we may not experience all of the things that we have to look forward to as Christians, we have already been given an inheritance. It's not something we will possess someday. It's something that we possess now just somewhere else. And it ought to change everything about our lives. And then he says this, and I love this, uh, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So these prophets in the Old Testament, they're writing things down about the incredible grace of God. They're saying, look, God's grace is so great that it will wipe away your tears. God's grace is so great that you will, that you will have forgiveness for your sins. God's grace is so great that the punishment that you deserve will be taken away. And they're like, when will this happen? We would love to know how this is going to take place. And Peter says, you who know the story of Jesus, you know, you have experienced, you have looked at, you have read about 
the very thing that these men wrote down and longed desperately, searched intently, not just searched, but searched intently to know about. They're writing about all this grace. Think about this. They're writing about all this grace. Look, I mean, someday you'll have an an inheritance and someday you'll be forgiven and someday the lion will lay down with the lamb and someday God will die for you. We don't even know what that means. Someday God will die for you and and someday he'll rise again and someday you'll you'll be in a place where it will shine like gold and it will be perfect and, and we don't even know when or how or what this looks like, but we want to. And Peter says, that's what you see. And he even says the angels, the angels desire to be able to understand this gospel message, this good news of Jesus in the way you do. And they can't, but you can possess it. And so you ought to have hope in that that produces joy, joy, joy. I mean, just think about that. How good does it feel to have something that other people want? It's probably sinful of us, but you know the feeling, right? <laughs> like when somebody looks at something you have and they're like, oh, I've always wanted that. You just think, yep, and I have it. You know, right? I mean, you know that, you know this feeling. And Peter's like, this is what we have as Christians. We have something that they wanted to be able to see when they were writing down these prophecies for you. And it's this hope because of what Jesus has done that will never perish, never be defiled, will never fade away. And it is reserved in heaven for us by the power of God. And that hope must produce joy. And this is what I want you to hear. If you want to live beautifully in this ugly, ugly world, then you must be a person who remembers your hope and has joy despite circumstances. Man, I'm around a lot of Christians I'm around a lot of pastors even. They're supposed to be super Christians. I laugh because it's not usually the case, including for the guy up here. Uh, But uh, there's not a lot of joy. In fact, it's one of the reasons that I sometimes don't like spending time around a lot of other pastors is because it seems like a joyful event. There's a lot of complaining about the way that their churches are. There's a lot of, uh, woe is me. They act like they have the hardest job in the world. I don't find it to be that difficult. But, uh, but it's like this, this never-ending spew of complaining. And there's a lot of Christians that aren't pastors that I don't like to be around because it's this never-ending complaints, just never-ending complaints. And I'll tell you this, the world is looking at us who are Christians, and they've picked up on it, and they've said, these people are no different than me. They just complain about different stuff. I complain, they complain, we complain, everybody's complaining, we're just complaining about different things. But what if, what if you just decided to remember your hope and you allowed it to produce a joy that makes you want to get up and dance that is inexpressible but deserves the highest praise, and you allowed for that joy to spill out everywhere? Then people would look at you and go, wow, there's something beautiful about their lives that is different than this ugly world in which they live. You see, the response to the ugliness that exists in our world is not to point out the ugliness all the time. The the, the response that Christians are to have is to have hope that produces joy despite 
the ugliness that they are surrounded by. And I just want to tell you this. We talked last week about how most people will live mediocre lives because they want to live lives that matter, lives that make a difference, lives that outlast their physical lives because they have impact that goes on and on and on, lives that are seen as moral and good, lives that are successful, but at the same time, there's an ugliness, and so usually they just get right in the middle and they have an average life. If you want to live an above average life that is more beautiful than it is ugly, then start by remembering hope and start by being joyful no matter what the circumstances because of that hope. I'll tell you what, you'll notice a difference instantly. You'll be awesome. Everybody will want to hang out with you and you'll start to make a serious difference. Will you pray with me? Lord, man, I pray God, and I think our church, uh, a little bit preaching to the choir for me today because we have a fairly joyful church, but they're still complaining and there's still people... uh, in our congregation, God, that, that seem to be more focused on the negative than on the positive. And I just pray, God, that for all of us, every one of us, God, we would just be radically changed because we would make a decision to focus on the hope that we have, our inheritance that is somewhere else but already obtained for us by you, and we would allow that to produce joy in us, God. Um, Lord, a lot of times we don't like what happens in the world, but I pray our first response would not be to complain about it, but to be joyful despite it, Lord. I pray, God, that we would... God, I pray that we would be a church that is known by our joy, that people would know us by how excited we are uh, about the things that you have done for us. I pray we would talk about how great you are, that we would praise you, God, that we would make it a point in everyday conversation to to say, I have a hope because of what Jesus has done for me, and we would let that hope dictate uh, our, our lives and the way that we respond to trials, God. Lord, for any Christian, any non-Christian, anybody that doesn't know you and love you as Lord and Savior in front of me, um, and anybody who will listen online, God, I pray that they would take the, the leap of faith and, and that they would place their belief in you and they would love you because, God, I want them to have the joy that I have experienced. I want it so badly, Lord. God, I pray that all of us would have joy as we remember your hope. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.